So far, we've looked at 84 year old Anna's peace and how, how her, uh, sorry, how her hope conquered the Grinch of despair. And then we looked at how uh, Mary's peace annihilated the Grinch of anxiety. Last week, we looked at how the shepherd's joy overcame the Grinch of depression. And this morning, we're, we're going to look at how God's love kicks the tar out of the Grinch of hate. You ever receive a gift that was totally unexpected and extremely extravagant? For example, you go to a friend's house, and this friend is maybe 99 on your list of top 100 friends, and you show up for some Christmas cookies, and you have to bring a gift but again, this, this friendship is not that valuable to you. So you, you bring a cheese ball from the office Christmas party or a recycled gift that your sister gave you that she recycled from someone else. You, you bring a gift that costs you nothing because, again, the, the relationship doesn't matter that much to you. And you show up, you give that free gift, and the friend whom you didn't value gives you a large screen TV, and a $250 Amazon gift card. That's awkward. (laughs) But you feel overwhelmed with gratitude. Clearly, that friend values the relationship way more than you do. Or think of it this way. Your Aunt Sally dies. You have an Aunt Sally? Anybody have an Aunt Sally? I'm sorry if you do. I thought of a name that is not that common, but imagine you have an Aunt Sally who dies, and uh, you don't know Aunt Sally all that well, but uh, the will is going to be read, and you are in the will. And again, you don't know her, you don't value her. The last time you saw her was when you were six years old at the family Christmas party, and your parents forced you to give her a kiss, even though she has a mustache. That's all you remember about Aunt Sally. And you remember that she has 10 cats and and a moldy corner covered. Uh, But you're invited to the will because you're named in the will and you show up thinking you'll get one of the cats or the moldy corner covered. But then your name is mentioned, followed by, to whom I leave $100,000. I always loved Aunt Sally. (laughs) Favorite aunt, mustache and all. I'll cherish her memory. Clearly, Aunt Sally valued the relationship way more than you do. That's really the story of the Bible. It's the Christmas story. It's an unconditional love of a God who gives you all sorts of extravagant gifts even when you're tempted to give him a cheese ball or a recycled gift from your sister. That's really... The Old Testament, too. I mean, it's, it's not just the Christmas story. It's the, it's the whole Bible. But the Old Testament, we see this pattern. Here's the way to understand the Old Testament. Here's the Old Testament in a nutshell. God lavishly loves the Jewish people, comes near to them, makes them a people of his own. And then uh, the people disobey him. They worship other gods. They oppress the poor. They complain all the time. And because of their hateful disobedience, the people of God get into hot water. And then when they get into hot water, they cry out to the God they didn't value. And the God they didn't value still values them, and he comes near, and he loves them, and he rescues them because they're his people. 
and then it happens all over again. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. And that's the Christmas story in a nutshell. The Christmas story in a nutshell is about this God who gives a large screen TV, $250 Amazon gift card to a human race that just wants to give him a cheese ball. That's really what it's about. And the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1. That's the Christmas story. And how does the Christmas story begin? From the Old Testament to the New? With a list of names. A genealogy. I imagine Matthew sitting down to write his gospel, and he thinks to himself, let's see, how can I draw people in with the Christmas story? Maybe a, maybe a humorous story, maybe a miracle of healing, maybe a battle between angels and demons. No, 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 no. I got, I got it. I got an idea. I'm going to draw people in with a genealogy. 42 hard-to-pronounce names, riveting. But in Jesus' day, somebody's lineage, their ancestry, their, their genealogy mattered because you are who you come from the apple doesn't fall far from the tree who you become is based upon who you came from and so we would expect going through the genealogy of jesus that uh, he would have a pristine pure perfect genealogy full of commendable royal excellent people and we'd be wrong. <laughs> Reading the genealogy of Jesus makes me feel like I just watched 10 episodes of Cops. <laughs> Amy and I have been talking about doing Ancestry.com, truth. And uh, after I read the genealogy of Jesus, I'm not so sure I want to know who is on my ancestry list. I'm afraid. When Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, came into the world... Here are the people he came through. Listen to this. I'm just going to cut, touch on a few. Jacob. Jacob is a lying deceiver who stole the birthright from his brother Esau and the blessing from his father Isaac. He's a liar, a cheat. And then you have Judah. Verse 3. Here's how cold-hearted Judah is, was. He allowed his father to believe that Joseph, the favored son, was dead. And he watched his father grieve the death of Joseph, even though Judah knew that Joseph wasn't dead but sold into slavery. That's cold. And then you have Tamar, still in verse 3. She disguised herself as a prostitute um, so that she could get her drunk father-in-law to sleep with her and impregnate her. I'm not making this up. And then you have Rahab. She actually was a prostitute. Verse 5. And then you have in verse 6, uh, Solomon and his mother, who had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She's not even named because she committed adultery with King David while her husband Uriah was out on the battlefield fighting for King David. It feels like a bad joke, doesn't it? A liar, a seductress, an adulterer, 
walk into a bar. You know, you just want to, it feels like a joke. I'm not done. Uh, back in September, we did a King Me series. We looked at some of the kings of Israel. Talk about an awful lot. <laughs> and we talked about arrogant Asa. He's in verse 8. We talked about unfaithful Uzziah. He's in verse 9. We talked about monstrous Manasseh. He's in verse 10. You remember Manasseh sacrificed his children in the fire to the god Moloch? Then you have Mary and Joseph at the very end. Now, they're not nearly as monstrous as Manasseh or deceptive like Jacob, but they're not royalty. They're not prestigious, well-known, elite kind of folks. They're They're just poor peasants from Podunk. And you'd expect better for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The eternal Son of God had a perfect lineage. He is the Son of the Father. Perfect. And yet, His love for us is so lavish and extravagant that He comes to us through a bunch of hookers and seducers, cheats and liars, adulterers and baby killers to prove his love for a Jewish people and human race that keep simply giving him cheese balls and recycled gifts. That's love. (laughs) He keeps finding a way to speak our language even when we're unwilling to speak his. I had a friend uh, in seminary. His name was Judd. And uh, he was married to a woman who was deaf. She could not speak his language so he learned to speak hers and i remember one time i was with judd and he he met his wife's eyes across campus and uh he told her he loved her and he didn't do with do it with a sort of generic i love you he did this i love you it's a more intimate way to say i love you and god by coming to us through a corrupt, less than plushy green family tree, says loud and clear, (laughs) well, Matthew's not done with names yet. There's something about names. I just love names. There's so much. I love funny names. Like Amy's grandmother's name, get this, Hubertha Wilhelmina. Isn't that funny? Her great-grandmother, no lie, is Daisy Violet Lily. That's her name. I love names. There's preppy names. Brett, Buffy, um, Biff. I have a friend named Biff. There are distinguished names like Charles, Bradley, Gwendolyn. That's the best I can do with an English accent. It's terrible. And then there are meaningful names like Leonard. That's my name. Len Nerd. I hated my name growing up. Len Nerd, 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 Nerd. But my name actually has meaning. So does yours probably. My name means brave as a lion. 
And although I haven't been all that brave in my life, there are a few times when I have remembered my name and tried to be more courageous in a moment than I would be if I didn't have that name. Tried to live up to it. Jesus has a meaningful name. The angel said to Joseph, you are to give the baby the name Jesus. Yeshua from Joshua, which means the Lord saves because Jesus will save his people from their sins. From their what? From their sins. Try to explain what Jesus did this way. I've been thinking all week long, how do I talk about the love of God, which we've heard so much about, and familiarity can breed contempt. And so I'm trying to talk about it in fresh ways. So here's how I picture what Jesus did. I was six months old. My sister's 13 months older. She's about a year and a half old. And my mom, uh, when I was six months old, put me on the kitchen table on a, like a car, in a car seat or some kind of bouncy seat. She put me on the middle of the kitchen table and then went down to do laundry down the basement. I'm not sure why she did this. Uh, social services would have a field day with this. But anyway, she put me on the table and I was a very hyper kid and I started to bounce around, bounce around, bounce around and the seat's bouncing to the edge of the table. And my sister, who had every reason to let me fall off the table because I had taken a lot of attention from her. A lot of love that my parents were giving her was now coming to me and I was crying and being fed all the time and I was a nuisance. And she could have said, ah, let him fall off. But instead, in her altruistic love for her little brother, she went to the basement doorway and yelled, Mommy, baby, Mommy, baby, mommy, baby. My mom knew something was wrong. Came running up the steps. And just before I fell off the edge of the table, she grabbed me. Ever since Adam and Eve, the human race has been bouncing around sinfully on the kitchen table toward the edge. And instead of God saying, Well, forget them. They made their bed, they can sleep in it. God went on a rescue mission. First, he sent prophets and priests and then kings, and none of them could cut it. So God came to us as one of us in the form of a baby who was prophet, priest, and king, all rolled into one to do for us what we could never do for ourselves to save us from falling off the edge of the table, to save us from sin. To save us from self, self self-centeredness, self-pity, self-hatred. And Jesus didn't just save us from sin by forgiving us of sin, but by freeing us from sin. I'm saying, because of what Jesus did, you don't just get a get-out-of-hell-free card. He actually has freed us from the power of sin right here, right now. We are not bound to lust, or pride, or greed, or gluttony, or oppression, or racism, or sexism, or whatever other ism you can think of. We are free because of what God, through Jesus, the one who saves from sin, has done for us. You are not bound We are free. Jesus. Matthew's not done with names. (laughs) He gives Jesus a nickname from Isaiah. 
my nicknames growing up were not real well, warm. My friends called me Fireplug because I was short and stubby like a fire hydrant. They called me Blockhead for obvious reasons because I have a square head. Don't laugh. Jesus gets a nickname, Emmanuel, which when translated means God with us. And it's not just a statement about God's, Jesus' proximity to us. It's not about proximity, God's near us physically. It's, it's not about proximity, it's about identity. It's about solidarity. When God took on human flesh, blood, and bone, he identified with us and experienced the most messy things imaginable that depict what it means to be human. Think of the messiest stuff we deal with as human beings. Think about it. God eternal, through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, experienced the messiness of childbirth, afterbirth. We think about that. I was working with a college student years ago, and please don't think this is irreverent, but she came up to me with tears in her eyes, and she said, Pastor Lenny, and I thought it was going to be real profound, and she just said, Jesus pooped. And I tried to hold back the laughter until I realized she was on to something. That the Son of God subjected himself to excretion. Jesus pooped. Jesus knows what it's like to hunger and thirst. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and rejected and abandoned and misunderstood and gossiped about. He knows all that. Emmanuel, God with us as one of us to save us. Why would God subject himself to that? Why couldn't he just stay on the sidelines in heaven and do something from a distance? I was, uh, I was playing little league football. I was 10 years old. And my mom, up to that point, didn't come to too many of my games because she didn't like to see her Butchie. That's what she called me. That was my nickname, Butchie. I don't know why she called me Butchie, but she did. And she uh, didn't come to my games often, but uh, there was a big game coming up. We were playing this team from out of town that was really, really good, best in our area. They were coming to our field to play, and I invited my mom. She said, okay, I'll come. And this team showed up, and man... <laughs> They had like cheerleaders doing flips in the air and a great marching band. And um, this is a, a league for 10 to 12 year olds, but like half the guys on that team had mustaches, weighed 250 pounds. And there were more fans of that game than I had ever remember seeing at one of my athletic events. Well, as you might have imagined, uh, the team just slaughtered us. It's fourth quarter now. They just, I don't know, it's like 100 to 7. I don't know what it was. And in the fourth quarter, uh, I broke, I was playing defensive line and I broke through the line. I broke through the line because no one blocked me. They let me through. And I got through the line and I see the, I see the guy with the ball, the running back right there. And I'm, I'm licking my chops and I'm ready to go get him. And then out of nowhere, a 400 pound fullback with a mustache and beard, age 12, supposedly, comes by and just crushes me, blindsides me, takes me right off my feet, onto my back. 
and I'm hurting. Usually I get up to show the guy he didn't hurt me, but I could not get up. So I looked over at my coach on the sideline and like as if to say, please help, please help, I need you. And my coach is just sort of moseying on the field like he's got all day. I'm dying. And then it happened. I see behind the coach, my mom, in front of all these people, running on to the field in a full sprint, past the coach with the chariots of music, uh, fire music playing in the background. Dun, 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 dun. And I got up quickly, <laughs> ran off the field, got my mom on the side and said, Mom, you can't do that. I never want you to come to a game again. She said, don't worry, I won't. <laughs> I said, why didn't you stay on the sidelines like everybody else? She said, how could, I, how could I stay on the sidelines while my butchie is suffering on the field? How could we expect God to stay on the safe sidelines while you suffer on the playing field. God is not a spectator watching you suffer. He's a participant with you in the suffering so that He might redeem it and eradicate it so that you live and reign with Him forever and ever and ever. Amen. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He would rather be with us in our mess than keep His hands clean. That's who we worship. He's not repulsed by your mess, as messy as you might deem your life to be. Think of it this way. It's going to be gross, but think of it this way. When I have to change a kid's diaper who's not my kid, it grosses me out. I don't do it. Not even a, like a relative. I don't do it because I, I, I get nauseous. I got I to hold back the barfing. It's the truth. If your, if your teenage kid has a stomach virus and yorks all over the place and I have to clean it up, it's your kid, I'm going to lose my lunch. But when it's my kids, and I'm, by the way, the fastest diaper changer I know. I had three kids in diapers at the same time. I, I broke records. <laughs> I don't even think of the messiness. It doesn't bother me. All I can think about is not the mess, but the needs of my kids in the moment. I remember Zach, when he was little, he would projectile vomit. I remember one time I was holding him like this, throwing up in the air, and he just, you guessed it, he just vomited right in my face. Yeah, it's gross if it's not your kid. We called it getting Zach-tized. That's what we called it wasn't repulsed. I was worried. I was concerned. I, I, God is not repulsed by your mess, is what I'm saying. And I hope these gross images stick in your head. They're intentional. Because I don't want you to escape the reality of Christmas. A God who loves us enough to step into our mess with us as Emmanuel, even if we give him a cheese ball and a recycled gift. That's who he is. Christmas story is really, really, really odd. Really odd. 
It's uncomfortably odd. God is odd. Let's just admit it. God is odd. The Christmas story is odd. I mean, God keeps loving us. He comes to us through a suspect lineage and through the names uh, he communicates through Jesus and Emmanuel that he is with us to save us. And he keeps loving us even though we hate him. It's odd. And you say, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, I don't hate God. I've never hated God. I might be indifferent. I'm just, I don't hate him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. In other words, obedience equals love, which means that disobedience equals unlove or hate. Which means that every time we miss the mark and disobey God in word, thought, or deed, we are hating God. And He keeps loving us. Now don't don't worry, Even even if you hate God, Even if you hate yourself, even if you hate people, guess what? God will still love you. He cannot not love you. I know it's a double negative. It's it's not in his divine DNA. And he loves you not because of what is in you, but because of what is in him. That's why he loves you. He can't not love you. It's just who he is. We often get on God because we think he's not logical. And if only God would just make sense to us. If we could understand him, if he could operate via human logic, then, then, then I, could, I could really track with God. He just doesn't make sense. Thank God he doesn't make sense. Because if God operated the way that we do, he would have stopped loving us a long time ago. If I were God, I would have destroyed you all. Thank God I'm not God. Because he's odd, he loves when we hate. We live in a culture of volatility and hate and violence. And in the political climate we're in, it's just getting worse. We have a two-party system and we're like this. Back in Jesus' day, when love came to town, it was a four-party system actually. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, all fighting it out, even though they had so much in common. We have a two-party system and can't get along. You've seen recently probably this Christianity Today article, and there's some uh, civil sharing of thoughts on both sides of the aisle among Christians, but there's some nastiness going on too, if I could say that. And at the end of the day, What matters more to God than anything else, more than our eloquence or intelligence or political allegiance or bumper stickers or how many Bibles we have or how big our Bible is, more important to God is that we live up to our birthmark. They will know we are Christians by our... If you walk into a room and the first thought somebody thinks is, here comes the liberal... Or here comes the conservative. Or here comes the Democrat. Or here comes the Republican. And they don't think, here comes the lover of Jesus Christ and people. Something is wrong. If we're known more for our allegiance to our political party than for our allegiance to Christ via love for people, something's wrong. 
Jesus put it this way. Put that verse, there it is. Uh, The next one, the next slide. Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says, uh, in verse 35, I don't know if that's up there, he says this, this is how all people will know that you're my disciple. If you have a bumper sticker, if you vote a certain way, they will know you're my disciple by how you love. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Thanks, Tina Turner. The person who is truly saved by the Savior's love will demonstrate that love the Savior demonstrated. That's a mouthful. Let me just put it more simply. People who are loved well, love well. You know by now that I get a lot of my best theology from a source other than, well, my best theology is from Scripture. My second best theology comes from 80s music. And I know some of you don't dig 80s music, and some of 80s music will be banned in heaven, I hope, like the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and Cindy Lauper, people like that. Billy Idol, forgot him. But Foreigner actually came up with a pretty profound song, profound according to 80s standards, 1984, called I Want to Know What Love Is. Remember that one? I'm going to try my best not to break into song because it's been in my head so often. The song goes like this. Uh, in my life, in my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. I want to know what love is. Sorry. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I want you, I know you can show me. You want to feel what love is? You want to know what love is? You want someone to show you? I present to you Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. How does God, through Christ, through the church, conquer the Grinch of hate? Love. Every decision that we're stuck with, every choice that we have to make, can be boiled down to do the loving thing. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. When you leave here today and you're faced with a dilemma, love. When you have a choice to make and don't know which door to go through, choose love. Love is stronger than death. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love always protects, always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, by our love. Because people who are loved well, love well. Let's pray.
I'm just going to, I want you to talk to God instead of hearing me some more. So I'm going to just invite you to first rejoice. Rejoice in the love God has shown you by giving you an extravagant gift, even if you've given him a recycled one. Just rejoice in the loving gift of God to you through Jesus Christ. Just rejoice for a bit. It's okay to have joy in church, by the way. Now repent. Just let's confess together how we have missed the mark of love, where we have shown hate, disobedience toward Him, hate toward others. And let's just repent. Say we're sorry. We've already said thank you. Now let's say sorry. rejoiced we've repented now let's resolve this is i will let's resolve today to love god by loving others because that's the gift he really wants from us so just in your own way tell god you resolve to love the people around you because you love him make that pledge Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the gifts you give us. We give you a cheese ball, you give us a dairy farm. We give you a recycled gift, you give us the store. You are amazing, and we love you for it. Help us as people loved well to love well, starting here and now by your grace. In the name of Christ, lover of our soul, we pray. God's people said, amen. I want to leave you with uh, a little Christmas gift, if I can. It's not money. Sorry. Uh, I wrote a little poem I want to share with you. Um, Please don't laugh, okay? Promise? Promise you won't laugh? Make the promise. Like, nod ahead. God won't laugh at you. Here it is. Here's my poem to you, my gift to you, the Lakeview Wesleyan Church. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and through most of my life there was darkness and doubt, depression and strife. I had given up hope that a gift I would find to save me from going out of my mind. The hate grinch grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. A dead man I was, and I know it was so. Then a new light had dawned to conquer despair. The Christ came to me and has always been near.' His light snuffed out darkness, so now I can see the God of the universe wants to be with me. I wrote this poem to let you know Jesus Christ loves you and will always do so.